Hi there, and welcome to the media ministry of River Bible Church. I'm Pastor Dustin Daniels, inviting you to visit our website to download today's sermon notes. You can sign up for our newsletter and also submit a prayer request. We would love to pray for you and answer any questions that you may have. For more information, visit riverbible.org. Now let's open up the Word of God together for today's message. Well, we are continuing our study in the the Gospel of Matthew this morning. Um, For those of you who are new with us, we we like to teach and preach verse by verse so that you can experience God day by day. And if you don't have a Bible, we got Bibles in the back there for you. That's our gift to you. We want to make sure that you have God's Word in your hand. Um, Before we dive into today's passage, let me do a review. We have spent the last four weeks learning about three specific temptations of Jesus. And we learn that all, all, really all three of these represent all the temptations that we ourselves will face. So I'd like to take a moment here just to review what each temptation of Jesus taught us personally. So within the first temptation... Key point number one, we learned that that word, the English word temptation is very different from the Greek. The Greek word parosmos doesn't mean just to trick um, into evil. It's a neutral word, and it can be used as a testing for good or a test, uh, a testing for good, excuse me, and a temptation for evil. And we don't know the outcome, do we, until we actually go through the trial itself. We also talked about, number two, how Jesus had the ability to sin. Some people don't think that Jesus had the ability to sin because he's God. Well, we we discussed that, and he most certainly had the ability to sin, or he's not truly human. Within the second temptation, we, we learn that we don't test God. God is the one who does the testing. We are, though, we are to test our motives. We are not to test God. Uh, Number three, Satan implied that God is trustworthy. He implied this, right? That God is trustworthy only when he rescues us from suffering and danger. We could say it this way, that Satan suggests that God is good only when life is good. And that's a lie, isn't it? Because God is good all the time. Within the third temptation, we learn four things. Number one, as Jesus continued to say no to Satan... He was saying yes to suffering. Number two, we learn that temptations that have been anticipated, right? We're aware of these things. We've anticipated the temptation. We've prayed against the temptation. They have little power over us when we do that. Number three, we talked about human resistance. uh, How human resistance only intensifies the pleasure of sin when we finally give in to it. So this idea of white-knuckling it, this idea of just hanging on with sheer grit, human, human grit apart from God, not a good thing to do. And number four, we learn that confession, confession is a biblical way to resist sin. And then really, over the past month, we could summarize all of, all of, uh, all of those sermons down to two points. And that is how Jesus overcame each temptation with two things, two powers. 
Number one, the power of the Holy Spirit. And number two, the power of God's word. Remember, he said, it is written. So I pray that the most encouraging thing that has really come out of this four-part series on temptation, if you want to say that, is that we too have the same powers. We have the Holy Spirit and we have the word of God. So if you missed any of those sermons, they are on the website with, our, uh, with my notes, if you want to refer back to those. Well, today we really have a seismic shift in our, in our narrative about Jesus. Things are very, very different today in his life, uh, rather than in the temptation story. Matthew shows us how Jesus officially starts his ministry of saving the lost. But something happens here. Actually, many things happen uh, in Jesus' life that Matthew doesn't record. And what we're, once again, we're going to shift from the temptation narrative in the desert to Jesus' ministry in Galilee. So what happened? What are these things, and how do they impact you? Well, let's find out. If you would, please stand for the reading and the honoring of God's Word. Matthew chapter 4, starting in verse 12. When Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. He left Nazareth and went into Capernaum by the sea, in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. And this was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Land of Zebulun, land of Naphtali. Along the road by the sea, beyond the Jordan, the Galilee of the Gentiles." The people who live in darkness, they've seen a great light. And for those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From then on, Jesus began to preach, repent, because the kingdom of heaven has come near. And this is the word of the Lord for River Bible Church this morning. Thank you, guys. Please have a seat. Let's take a deeper look here in verse 12. When Jesus heard that John, so that's John the baptizer, when he had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. So here is the abrupt transition, this abrupt transition, this seismic shift that I mentioned, and it really starts in, in verse 12. The sudden change here is due to a time lapse, um, and this is a pretty large time gap between verse 11 of last week and verse 12 of this week. And this omission, it could be anywhere from nine months to, uh, to 12 months, basically a year of Jesus' life. Well, that's a pretty significant piece of Jesus' life that Matthew doesn't record. And if Jesus' ministry is only three years, we have to ask the question, don't we? Why doesn't he record nearly a third of Jesus' life? Well, a couple thoughts. Number one, please keep in mind that Matthew was writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So ultimately, it was the Holy Spirit that led Matthew to omit this portion of Jesus's life. And number two, it could be the fact here that these events that we're going to talk about don't directly relate to Jesus as the King of Kings. See, Jesus as King, that's the lens in which Matt writes this gospel. But here's the good news. Matt leaves it out, but we don't have to look far um, for this missing information because John's gospel records everything that we need to know. 
So as you can imagine, Jesus did a lot of things here within the next year after he recovered from that fast and overcame Satan's temptations. So what I'd like to do here is just kind of give us a high-level view of these things from John's gospel. And really, guys, this is so cool because John's gospel picks up the story right from Matthew chapter 4, verse 11. So if you want to flip over to John's gospel, let me walk you through what John has to say in this missing year. So John chapter 1, and we're going to fill in the gaps here. So after John's prologue, we see that John the, the baptizer, he explains to the scribes and the Pharisees in, in verses 19 through 34, who Jesus is. Scribes and the Pharisees, those are, those are the religious leaders. In verses 35 through 51, we see Peter, Andrew, James, John, and Philip, along with Nathaniel, they all meet Jesus for the first time in this text. Look at John chapter 2. Jesus performs his first miracle at the wedding in Cana. Jesus did that miracle, by the way, for, mostly for his disciples so that they would know that he is God. But obviously the wedding party benefited from that. Um, verses 13 through 25, Jesus cleanses. He purifies the temple, doesn't he? Jesus introduces himself to all these religious leaders by going into his house and cleansing it. Certainly a, a way to make a first impression. Flip over to John chapter 3. This is where Jesus meets Nicodemus. Because after the cleansing, somebody has to go talk to Jesus. Nicodemus does that. Um, verses 20 through, through 26. This really is an amazing text because we see John the baptizer, his ministry, Jesus' ministry, they start to overlap here in a way that they're working side by side. But here's the thing. John's disciples get jealous of Jesus because Jesus' disciples, they're baptizing more than John. A little competition in ministry. The more things change. You can finish that. The more they stay the same, right? Y'all with me? All right. John chapter 4. Jesus meets a Samaritan woman. Another amazing text. He tells this Samaritan woman, first person, that he's God. He tells her that. Verses 27 through 44, Jesus stays with the Samaritans. He ministers to them. And then in verses 43 through 54, Jesus performs his first healing miracle back his second trip to Cana. So those nine events, that took place over the first year where Matthew leaves out, and now Matthew picks it right back up here in verse 12. When Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. Now, I love this. I love the humanity of Jesus. Jesus laid aside his divinity to be tested as a human being, just like you and me. We spent a lot of time on that with the temptation narrative. But here in verse 12, look what, look what happens. We see more of Jesus' humanity. Verse 12, when Jesus heard, when he heard, Jesus heard the news about John's arrest just like everyone else. 
He didn't use his divine powers to, to know anything ahead of time. And on those few occasions that Jesus did, it was because the Father revealed it to him. But in this case, the Father didn't tell Jesus that John was arrested. So John, uh, Jesus heard this tragic news through the grapevine just like everyone else. Verse 12 continues here, when Jesus heard that John had been arrested. So John the baptizer, he was arrested by a man named Herod Antipas. And John was thrown into a dungeon at Machiris. Machiris is a, a fortified castle on the eastern shore of the Dead Sea. It sits really on the, on the border of, of Galilee. Machiris, it's not named in Scripture, but Josephus, who's a, a Jewish historian, he was also the governor of, of Galilee at one time. He explicitly states that John was imprisoned and executed at Machiris. And the name Machiris, it literally means sword. Now question, why was John thrown into prison in the first place? Well, he got himself involved in some political drama. Long story short, Herod Antipas stole his half-brother's wife named Herodias. Let that sink in for a second. He stole his half-brother's wife, Herodias. I'm not sure why people continue to watch television when there's a whole lot more drama in the Word of God. I mean, think about it. Fiction has nothing on God's Word. Herod Antipas is committing incestuous adultery. And he's ruling and reigning over the Jews, and he's not even a Jew himself. John calls Herod out on his sin. Not once, but continually. See, John was not scared of, of Herod Antipas. John calls sin, sin. It's not a mistake. It's not like, oops, sorry, won't happen again. I'm sorry, did that again. No, he calls sin, sin. And he says, stop it. You need to stop it. You need to divorce your half-brother's wife and start honoring God. And just like Jesus, the truth, that kind of truth, will cost John his life as we study Matthew's gospel. But continuing here in verse 12, when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew. He withdrew. So we learn from John's gospel that Jesus spent about a year traveling around Israel. He spent some time in Judea, where the city of Jerusalem is located. He also spent some time in Samaria. But the question is, why did Jesus have to withdraw from these areas? Was he afraid? Did Jesus lack courage? No, he, he left the southern part of Israel because really his work was done at that time. Jesus knew a, a few things here. He knew his popularity was growing with the people, but at the very same time, resentment was also cultivating among the uh, religious leaders. So Jesus withdrew because he didn't want a premature crisis to happen so early in his ministry. And what we're really seeing here, guys, is the divine timing of God the Father. Keep in mind that Jesus is perfectly obedient to, to the Father. And as we go through Matthew's gospel, we're going to see here how Jesus inherently, he just understands that he is on a divine time frame. He has to keep things moving. And it's at this moment 
that Jesus' introduction to Israel is over, and it's a new chapter for Jesus. He begins his official ministry because John's ministry is, is ending. John even confirms this, right? He said, he told his disciples, he must increase, but I must decrease in John 3.30. So it's at this moment we see a new, a new chapter of Jesus' ministry. So in verse 12, he, he not only withdrew, but he withdrew in the Galilee. Now, why would he go to Galilee? Many of you have maps in the, in the back of your Bible, and, and you'll notice that Galilee is in the northern part of Israel. We've got Samaria in the middle. Judea is in the southern. The city of, Jerus of Jerusalem is in Judea, so it's southern Israel. So if we compare Israel to Arizona, for example, geographically, we could say that Phoenix would be Jerusalem, Cottonwood is Galilee, uh, cottonwood is a, a melting pot of sorts for people, right? But Galilee, a lot more. At this time, Galilee, racially and religiously diverse. And it's this diversity that the hotshots in uh, Judea, also within the city of Jerusalem there, they didn't really care for the people of Galilee. We see this attitude most notably when Peter denies Christ. Remember that? Jesus was being questioned interrogated in Matthew 26, 69. All of Galilee was really an international and interracial cosmopolitan. And surprisingly, Galilee was, was more of a, a crossroads than Jerusalem. Galilee was not a large territory at all. It was about 50 miles from north to south and about 25 miles across there were over 200 cities in Galilee, in this area. The population of each city was about 15,000 people. So we're looking at over 3 million people in this small area. It's a lot of people. There's also a famous highway, this, this trade route that ran through Galilee. It was called the Way of the Sea. And this superhighway, what it did is it ran from Galilee, really from Damascus, down to the, through Galilee, down to the Mediterranean coast, and then down to Egypt. It was just huge. It was massive. It's, it's kind of like taking I-17 down to Phoenix, and then exiting on I-10, and just following it all the way down to Florida. One ancient writer said that Judea was on the, on the road to nowhere. Galilee was on the way to everywhere. There's a lot of things going on in Galilee. So two questions at this point. How did northern Israel become so different than, than the southern part of Israel? And number two, why is Jesus specifically, why is he going to Galilee? Verse 13 continues. Let's find out. Jesus left Nazareth and he went to live in Capernaum by the sea. Nazareth was Jesus' hometown. Tiny, tiny village. Many people despise this little village. Remember Nathaniel? He asked Philip, he said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Now it's at this point, though, where Jesus makes an important strategic decision by moving his ministry headquarters from Nazareth to Capernaum. But once again, why would he do this? Jesus grew up in Nazareth. He's got family there. He's got friends there. Well, we get a little hint from Luke's gospel. We learn that Jesus was preaching in Nazareth, 
And his preaching was so good that they turned around and tried to kill him. That's when you know you preached a good sermon. So, so it's by divine providence here that the Father moves from it moves Jesus from Nazareth to Capernaum using this event. Now, we've talked about the area of Galilee. Let's talk about the city of Capernaum. Capernaum is a much larger city than Nazareth. It's really known as a fishing hub. It has lots of buying, selling, uh, lots of trading, many, many small businesses there. Capernaum also had a Roman military unit stationed there because it's a crossroads for many, many people. So by Jesus choosing Capernaum as his new ministry headquarters and his, his new hometown, Jesus had access to a whole lot of more people, both Jews and Gentiles. That name Capernaum there, it means village of Nahum. Capernaum may have been named for that particular Old Testament prophet, but Nahum, it also means compassion. So there's a possibility that, that the village was named after its compassionate people. We don't know for sure. Regardless, by the first century, Capernaum is a booming city. Capernaum is, is two miles west of the Jordan River. It's a beautiful city. Capernaum, that, that's where Matthew, our gospel writer, that's where he had his tax booth. That's where he lived. Capernaum is where Jesus performs eight, possibly nine separate miracles. Now, those are all benefits as to why Jesus moved to Capernaum. But scripture tells us the primary reason. Look at verse 13 and 14 here. He left Nazareth. He went to live in Capernaum by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. So Matthew, he's going to paraphrase the, the prophet Isaiah here in a, in a bit. Um, and in verse 15, we're going to see Matthew call this area that we just talked about, this area of Galilee, the Galilee of the Gentiles. Now, keep in mind, Galilee's in Israel. It's a Jewish nation. And a Gentile is anyone who's not a Jew. They're not a believer in the one true living God, Yahweh. The Gentiles are pagan non-believers. So why on earth would Matt call the Jewish land of Galilee, Galilee of the Gentiles? Well, the short answer is that there are millions of Gentiles living there, and they shouldn't be. The book of Judges tells us that the Israelite people, they did not obey God when he told them to drive out all these pagan people from the land. Now, why would God give that, that kind of commandment? Isn't that kind of unloving? Well, no, God gave them this command because he knew that they would bring all of their false, all of their fake gods into the land. They would be eventually tempted to worship these false religions. The history of the Old Testament clearly demonstrates all this. But let's look at, at Matt's paraphrase here of Isaiah 9.1. Matthew 4.15. Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali. Along the road by the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. Now, why on earth would Matt quote this verse as Jesus starts his ministry in Capernaum? Well, the history of, of Zebulun and Naphtali, it takes us all the way back to Moses and Joshua. 
Zebulun and Naphtali, they are two tribes, uh, two of the 12 tribes in Israel. And both of these tribes failed to purge all of those Canaanites from the land. So these, these Jews started to intermarry with the pagans, just like God said. So they had mixed marriages. They had a synchronistic faith, synchronism, the, the blending of, of all of these different religions. So in the history of Israel, these two tribes, Zebulun, Naphtali, they were continuously rebellious and unfaithful. The book of 2 Kings it shows that after the Jews were evicted from that northern part of Israel, all of these foreigners, they started to flood the land. They wanted to live there. It was so beautiful. Egyptians, Arabians, Phoenicians, Greeks, they all moved into, into this area where God gave these two Jewish tribes their homeland. So what's all that mean? Well, it means that people who don't have a clue about God, they took over and they displaced God's people. Because the land of Zebulun is Nazareth, Capernaum is Naphtali in the first century. This entire area is called the Galilee of the Gentiles, and it just so happens that this is the exact area where Jesus is now living. Wow, that is such a coincidence. Don't you just love coincidences in the Bible? Jesus is now there. So verse 15 tells us about the location of the people, and now verse 16 tells us about the, the people living there. Look at this. The people who live in darkness, they have seen a great light. And for those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Dang. Both the Jews and the Gentiles living in Galilee, they're, they're living in darkness. The picture here in verse 16 shows that they're literally just sitting in darkness, oblivious to it. This area of Galilee is filled with millions of people living in the shadow of death. So that's the big picture. These people are oblivious to the dangers and the hopelessness of life. Let's turn to Isaiah's words here to get a fuller, more detailed picture of what's going on. This is the scripture passage that Matthew paraphrases, Isaiah 8.22. So they, that's the Jews, the Jews will look towards the earth and they will see only distress, darkness, and the gloom of affliction. And they will be driven into thick darkness. Nevertheless, the gloom of the distressed land will not be like that of former times when he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he's going to bring honor to the way of the sea, to the land of east of the Jordan and to the Galilee of the nations. I find it amazing that Isaiah places the highway that runs through Galilee in Isaiah 9.1. He says the way of the sea. Verse 2, the people are walking in darkness. They've seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. So the, the decision here by Jesus to move to Galilee, it fulfills Isaiah's prophecy. Isaiah was written five to seven hundred years before Jesus was even born. Dang. Now, we can't help but, but notice how Matthew juxtaposes light and darkness here. One day, 
These Galilean people, they're just walking around in spiritual darkness. And the next day, bam, Jesus walks into their city. Jesus, the very light of the world, he walks into this land of, of depravity and death and everything changes. Verse 17, Matthew says, from then on, your translation may say from that time. So that phrase there, it, it marks a significant turning point. Matthew tries something, well, he ties something new to Jesus's ministry. So what's the turning point? The turning point is that Jesus begins to preach. And not only does Jesus begin his preaching ministry, but he also starts where John the baptizer left off. Verse 17, from then on, Jesus began to preach. So in other words, he was proclaiming a message that nobody wanted to hear. That word preach there, keruso, it it means to proclaim or, or to make known, to, to herald this message to a group of people. Preaching was the primary mode of ministry before Jesus was arrested. Notice here, it wasn't small groups. It wasn't this concept of discussing endless philosophy. Jesus wasn't focused on, on social justice issues either. His primary method of ministry was preaching and teaching. So what was the title of his first sermon? Repent. In other words, he's saying, be converted. We have to be converted. Repentance, it includes a change in every aspect of our life. There's a turning on who we used to be. We are to turn, when we repent, we're to turn 180 degrees. We are to leave our, our life of wickedness, and we're to turn around and, and pursue a life of holiness. Repentance means changing our orientation. We are to stop thinking the way that we've always thought. We're to stop doing the things that we've always done. If we're thieves, we are to stop stealing from others. If we drink too much, we are to pursue sobriety. If we watch pornography, we are to stop abusing people by, by living in this sexual dysfunction, and we're, we're to turn around from that and strive towards healthy relationships. To repent of, of our sin, it means that there's a change in, in our perception. There's a change in our opinions. There's a change in our worldview. Everything changes when we repent and we're converted. Everything. Now, guys, we all know that doesn't happen overnight. The changes are incredibly slow. They are, they are painful. But we are to join God where he's leading us in this process. God will start small with all of these changes, and he will walk slowly with us as he changes us. Now, why should we repent? Verse 17 tells us, because the kingdom of heaven has come near. Well, tragically, Israel did not repent, and they were not converted. Nor did they really recognize Jesus as their king. And as we continue studying Matthew's gospel here, we're going to learn that the literal, the physical kingdom of heaven, where Jesus rules and reigns as king, that was set aside for a short period of time. 
And it was set aside because the Jews killed Jesus instead of crowning him. So we're living in that time frame today. We're living in that, that period today. We call it the church age, Acts 2 until the rapture. So Jesus is not ruling the nation of Israel today, nor is he ruling the world as he one day will. But Jesus does rule and he does reign in the lives of people who are converted, who believe. So in other words, at this moment, the kingdom of heaven, it's a spiritual kingdom. The world doesn't have peace, but those who have been converted do. The world doesn't know joy, but those who have repented are swimming in it. The world doesn't know grace, but those who are called children of God, we receive that grace, don't we? The world doesn't know truth, but the saints living in the kingdom of heaven, we've tasted it. So we are currently living in the tension between these two times because the kingdom of heaven, it, it is already here. It's just not entirely. It's like we've got one foot in heaven, one foot here on earth. We are citizens of heaven, yes, like the apostle Paul says, but where Jesus is king, we, also, we still have this mailing address here on the earth as well. So there's a tension there, isn't there? You know, I can't help but think about how the, the Galilee of the Gentiles, how that is just so similar to the Verde Valley. They had all sorts of false religions and cults and fake gods. And yet, has anything changed in the past 2,000 years? I mean, in our own backyard, we, we've got devil worship in Jerome. We've got all sorts of new age in Sedona. Clarkdale, Cottonwood, Cornville. We either have all sorts of false beliefs that are mixed into Christianity. There's a whole lot of synchronism. Or we got the, the other side of that. Nobody gives a rip about Christ at all. So we too are living in a time of spiritual darkness, just like them. Here's the difference, though. The difference between us and the Galileans is that there was only one light named Jesus in the first century. But now there are thousands of lights in the Verde Valley. It's called the church. Have you ever noticed that when, when you lose electricity, that um, when you light a candle, how much light that candle actually provides? One moment you're sitting in the dark. You light that little candle and it just illuminates the whole room. And that's the picture that God gives us here when the Apostle John, he writes this in, in John 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. Who's the Word? Whenever in doubt, just say Jesus. Right? <laughs> it's the default answer. In Him was life. And that life was the light of men. And that light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. It didn't, and it hasn't, and it won't. So what's all that mean for us today? Well, I, I, I don't know. I, I just I think it's pretty amazing how all the darkness in a room, it can't swallow that little light. Now, I want you to think about what happens when all those little candles 
come together like we are this morning. How light, how bright that light becomes. Once again, it's called the church. And next Sunday, we're going to see Jesus start giving away his light when he, when he starts calling his first set of disciples. But in the meantime, here's what I would like you to do. I want to encourage you to share your light with someone this week. Tell them about Jesus. Tell them that you were once blind, and now you can see. Tell them your story about Jesus. Amen? All right, guys, go ahead and stand for me. We'll pray. Let me give you today's benediction. So, Father, we do rejoice in your greatness and your power, your gentleness, your love, your mercy, your justice. And we do praise you because you are the light of the world. We pray that you prepare us by your spirit to honor you in our thoughts and our words and our actions and to serve you in every aspect of our lives this week. And we continue to pray for these God intersections, for these divine disruptions to our own lives so that we can be such a very small part of spreading your light to other people. And all God's people said, amen and amen. Thank you, guys. We have fellowship to the left if you would like prayer through the foyer and to the right. God bless you.